Hey guys, and welcome to a new episode. This is your host, Mohammed, and we'll get started with a liver MRI question. What are the common signal characteristics of a hepatic adenoma? On T1, we have heterogeneous signal, which depends on the fat content and hemorrhage. It would be decreased signal if there is necrosis or calcification. On T2, there is also heterogeneous signal, which depends again on the fat content and hemorrhage. On contrast, there is mild heterogeneous arterial enhancement. And given that an adenoma lacks portal venous drainage, it does not demonstrate enhancement on that phase. If we use EOVIST, adenoma does not show any significant uptake or retention of EOVIST on delayed imaging. And on in and out of phase imaging, we see loss of signal on the out of phase imaging consistent with intracellular or intracytoplasmic fat. Again, imaging characteristics of hepatic adenoma on T1 and T2, it's very heterogeneous signal because of the hemorrhage and fatty content. On gadolinium arterial enhancement, we have mild heterogeneous enhancement, and it does not demonstrate portal enhancement because it lacks portal venous supply. On EOVIST, we do not have any substantial uptake or retention of EOVIST on delayed imaging. And on in and out of phase imaging, we have signal dropout on the out of phase imaging consistent with intracellular or intracytoplasmic fat. Repeat question from a couple of days back or a couple of weeks back, actually. What is the most common primary cardiac malignancy in adults? Again, adults primary and cardiac malignancy, that is angiosarcoma. If you think that the heart is essentially a pump or blood vessel conglomerate, then you can think of blood vessel cancer. Primary blood vessel cancer is angiosarcoma. So most common primary cardiac malignancy in adults is cardiac angiosarcoma, most commonly seen in the right atrium and a lesser extent in the left atrium. This question is a review from a couple of weeks back pediatric posterior fossa tumor, we said there's four, medulloblastoma, positic astrocytoma, brainstem glioma, and ependymoma. We said examiners love to us to differentiate between medulloblastoma and ependymoma because of their location. Medulloblastoma is in the roof of the fourth ventricle, ependymoma typically in the floor of the fourth ventricle. Medulloblastoma is rapidly growing, ependymoma is slow growth. Medulloblastoma key feature is diffusion restriction, and this is different from all the posterior uh, pediatric fossa tumors. Post-contrast, we get enhancement in both medulloblastoma and ependymoma. We said for medulloblastoma, there is uh, leptomeningeal enhancement as well, and ependymoma, there is enhancement that is heterogeneous. For polycystic astrocytoma, we said polycystic, so there is a cyst and an enhancing mural nodule. Brainstem glioma demonstrate minimal enhancement. However, it is T2 bright as well as the polycystic astrocytoma. We said that's also a cyst, so it is T2 bright. Let's do another review question. Difference between progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy and HIV encephalitis. The name PML, multifocal, so it's asymmetric multifocal demyelinating disease. HIV encephalitis is symmetrical and spares subcortical white matter. In progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy, it's multifocal, so it does not spare the subcortical white matter. So we see asymmetric multifocal lesions can demonstrate mild enhancement, does not spares the subcortical white matter, and they are usually involved. Pathogenesis of PML is a demyelinating disorder seen in immunocompromised patient caused by JC virus 
activation. If you remember, we said there is an MS medication that causes JC virus activation and causes PML. That was Tay-Sarbi or Natalizumab. What is a differential for UIP? So most commonly IPF or interstitial pulmonary fibrosis, rheumatoid arthritis, scleroderma, asbestosis, and stage hypersensitivity pneumonitis and in-stage sarcoidosis. Again, most common causes for UIP is IPF. What are the common localizer MRI sequences? Commonly, we have the balanced steady state free procession. We have a single shot fast spin echo or a T1 weighted image. These slices are typically 15 millimeter in thickness with 10 millimeter or one centimeter inter-slice gap. So this, these are to give us a rough idea of what we're scanning and they usually have a large field of view which are problematic. So it's important to look at them when we're reading MRI. Again, commonly we have balanced steady state free procession imaging, which as we said, this is a bright blood sequence where both blood and fluid are bright, single shot fast spin echo, and T1-weighted image. All of these sequences are acquired very quickly, and typically the slice thickness is 15 millimeter with inner slice gap of 10 millimeter. All right, what are the following cysts or, you know, ovarian cysts? Follicular cyst, corpus luteum cyst, theca luteal cyst, and hemorrhagic cyst. Let's start with the easiest one, which is the hemorrhagic cyst. Hemorrhagic cyst basically hemorrhage into a functional cyst. Commonly, the functional cyst is corpus luteum. When you have corpus luteum with a hemorrhage, that can have very, very variable appearance, and so we need to follow up if it's complex in appearance to ensure resolution. Second is a follicular cyst. This is a cyst that is approximately or slightly greater than 25 millimeter that represent a follicle that did not undergo ovulation, meaning, you know, we have cysts or follicles that enlarge and then at the time of the cycle, one of those cysts undergo ovulation. Now, a follicle cyst is a cyst that did not undergo ovulation. Corpus luteal cyst is a cyst that grow greater than three centimeter and does not involute. And that also can have a variable appearance, just like a hemorrhagic cyst, which we said to hemorrhage into a corpus luteum. And the key feature is they have high diastolic flow, which can be seen in cancer. So you can't really use that. Finally, thecal luteal cyst, these are often bilateral, and we repeated this a couple of times already. They occur in the setting of elevated beta S. HCG, and so they can be seen in molar pregnancies, multiple gestation, or patients undergoing infertility treatment. Again, fecal luteal cysts are cysts that arise in the setting of elevated beta HCG because this is a systemic process. They will be multiple and bilateral. Coming down from the top, follicular cyst, a simple cyst, 25 millimeter, follicle did not go undergo ovulation. Corpus luteal cyst is a corpus luteum that did not involute normally when it should, and it, so it has a complex appearance. Theca luteal cyst, due to elevated beta HCG, they, can, they are bilateral and multiple, and hemorrhagic cyst hemorrhage into a functional cyst, commonly corpus luteum, which is functional cyst, meaning it has a function in secreting hormones, and can have variable appearance. If it looks complex, we need to follow it up to ensure resolution. And the typical follow-up period is somewhere where you want, uh, you know, one or two period cycles to have recurred. So, uh, you know, in a different stage. So if they image it during ovulation or during menses, you want to image six weeks from that, which give it one cycle and a half. So you're at a different stage of the cycle. 
common imaging feature associated with this genesis of corpus callosum. So outside of the classic malformation, this genesis of the corpus callosum would be associated with lipomas or central cyst. As you imagine, we have corpus callosum, which is in the center of the brain, and if it's absent or small or atrophic, you got to have something else in place, which may be actually cause the dysgenesis. So what we typically see, we can see a large lipoma or a large cyst, interhemispheric cyst. This is a question I'm going to repeat multiple times to drill into your head because it's commonly confused by me and many other residents. Difference in urethral pseudodiverticulosis and ureteritis cystica. So pseudodiverticulosis... We talked about it previously, just like diverticulosis in the colon, it's outpouching. What is it outpouching of? It's outpouching of the epithelium through the muscularis layer due to chronic inflammation. What we mean is that in on a contrasted study or a delayed urogram, what we see is outpouching of contrast material outside the ureter borders. Ureteritis cystica is kind of the opposite from that because it's multiple small submucosal cysts. So these cysts cause filling defect on urethral imaging. So they're not outpouching, there is a filling defect. Typically, ureteritis cystica is seen in patients with diabetics or multiple UTI, so kind of chronic inflammation, similar pathology, but different presentation. Again, pseudodiverticulosis is outpouching. Ureteritis cystica is submucosal cysts, which cause filling defect. On a chest x-ray, what imaging features you should be able to see associated with sickle cell disease. So if they show you an x-ray, lateral and AP view or an AP or PA view only, what things would they show you that would be consistent with sickle cell disease? So you can have humeral head sclerosis, which would be consistent with avascular necrosis of the humeral head, which is finding associated with sickle cell disease. They can show you H-shaped vertebral body, which is also consistent with sickle cell disease. And finally, they're really, really, really tricky. They can expect you to know that the splenic shadow is absent, and that is consistent with autonecrosis or autoinfarction of the spleen, which is seen in sickle cell disease. Again, Three things that they might show you in a single view chest x-ray or a single chest x-ray. There can be two views. Sclerosis of the humeral heads, typically bilateral due to AVN, H-shaped vertebral body, and absent splenic shadow. Imaging features or mechanism of communicating hydrocephalus. So typically it's communicating hydrocephalus. It's due to inability to reabsorb CSF, which can be due to subarachnoid hemorrhage or meningitis. Commonly or classically, the fourth ventricle would be dilated, and this is treated by interventricular shunt. Again, communicating hydrocephalus, there is no obstruction. It's typically due to failure of reabsorption of CSF, can be seen in the setting of subarachnoid hemorrhage or meningitis. What is Meig's syndrome? This is a triad of ovarian fibroma, ascites, and right pleural effusion. Again, Meig's syndrome is triad of ovarian fibromas, ascites, and right pleural effusion. Which pathology is associated with optic nerve glioma, or which genetic disorder is associated with optic nerve glioma, neurofibromatosis type 1? Obviously, 
neurofibromatosis type 1 caused by absence of tumor suppressor genes. So neurofibromatosis type 1 is associated with a lot of tumors, but common association, especially in the brain, is optic nerve glioma. What is the double PCL sign? This is a sign of bucket handle tear of the medial meniscus. Again, bucket handle tear is, or double PCL sign is seen in bucket handle tear of the medial meniscus. I mean, it can be the lateral meniscus, but commonly the medial meniscus. Differences between IPF or idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis and nonspecific interstitial pneumonia. This is review from a couple of days prior. We said IPF, which is most common cause of UIP, is basal to apical gradient changes consistent with traction bronchiectasis and honeycombing. Honeycombing is an important feature and NSIP or nonspecific interstitial pneumonia is associated with peripheral ground glass opacities with lower lobe predominance and subpleural sparing, meaning the subpleural lung is spared from ground glass opacities. It is seen or in association with connective tissue disorders, including scleroderma. Again, IPF, basal to apical gradient, traction bronchiectasis, and honeycombing. In SIP, peripheral ground glass with subpleural sparing associated with connective tissue disorders. Images features associated with NPH or normal pressure hydrocephalus. This is the classic wet-wacky and wobbly from step one due to enlargement or communicating hydrocephalus. There are numerous studies trying to quantify when we see it because clinically it's enlarged ventricles are common in elderly people. The key thing is to distinguish normally enlarged ventricle due to cortical volume loss from normal pressure hydrocephalus. There are a few things to look at. So one, the ventricle are enlarged, but there isn't an associated cortical volume loss and the sulci are not prominent, would be consistent with NPH if the clinical picture is also consistent. On radiography, there is two other things that we can use. There's the Evans index, which is the ratio of maximum width of the frontal horn of the lateral ventricle and the maximum internal diameter of the skull at the same level on an axial CT or MRI images. Normal Evan index is typically less than 0.3. Additionally, the colossal angle, so that's the angle on a coronal slice between the two lateral ventricles, meaning a V-shape between the lateral V2 ventricles on a coronal slice. Normal colossal angle is between 100 and 120 degrees. If the ventricles are enlarged, as you can imagine, the ventricle wall would start being opposing each other, meaning the lateral ventricles would start coming closer together because they are dilated. And so the reported colossal angle, less than 80 degrees, would be consistent or suggestive of NPH. Again, there isn't really a imaging feature that would be pathognomonic for NPH. We have few things. Evans index, which is the maximum width of the frontal horn of the lateral ventricle compared to the skull at the same level, should be less than 0.3. Then we also have a colossal angle, a normal colossal angle between 100 and 120. If it's less than 80, then it can be suggestive of NPH. Again, the clinical picture is the key thing for NPH. And finally, we said enlargement of the ventricle without a consistent cortical volume loss or sulci atrophy. Differential for ivory vertebral body. I got really this from podcast called FRCR songs for FRCR it's a pretty good one so if you have time you can also listen to it it's a pretty good resource 
ivory vertebral body differential for ivory vertebral body, osteoblastic metastasis, lymphoma, and Paget's disease. Well, what are the common osteoblastic metastasis? We have breast, prostate, and lung, lymphoma, particularly Hodgkin lymphoma, and Paget's disease of the bone. Again, differential for ivory vertebral body. This is scattered areas of diffusely sclerotic vertebral body and differential for it, osteoblastic metastasis, lymphoma, and Paget's disease. Differential for osteoblastic metastasis include breast, prostate, and lung cancers. We'll do one quick question and we'll end. Structures passing through foramen spinosum. We have the middle meningeal artery and vein as well as nervous spinosis. Again, structures that pass through the foramen spinosum, middle meningeal artery and vein, and nervous or spinosis nerve. Thank you guys.